So you need to design your employee experience to really capture the key elements of your desired customer experience. And I think when you do that, then employees just naturally understand why you're making a change. Hello, and welcome to the Master Your Business podcast. I'm your host, Deirdre Martin, and this show, my friend, is tailored just for you, professional service provider. If you've ever thought about how to truly master your business, grow in your field, and stand out from the crowd, you are in the right place. Today's episode promises to be exceptionally enlightening. So let me tell you a little bit about our distinguished guest for today, Denise Leon. With a flair for brand excellence, Denise has journeyed from captivating global audiences at international conferences like TEDx and corporate events for heavy hitters like Facebook, aka Meta, to penning influential books like Fusion, which is Subtitled, How Integrating Brand and Culture Powers the World's Greatest Companies, which we are going to discuss in a fair bit of detail today. Denise is also a regular voice in the Harvard Business Review and Forbes. She's a brand expert who has been called upon by renowned media outlets like CNBC and the New York Times to offer her seasoned perspective. With a storied career that saw her champion brand building at ad agencies for giants like Burger King and Land Rover, then heading over to Sony's brand office, Denise has amassed awards and recognitions that many could only dream of. But it's not just business for Denise. She's also passionate about melding faith and work, serving as the founder or director of Faith and Work Journey, and even dedicating her time to board positions for organizations like Cameron House, which is an organization which empowers the San Francisco Chinese community to build strength and resilience through family-centered programs. Denise, welcome to the show. We are thrilled to dive into your insights today, and particularly on the topic of fusion and its undeniable impact on success. But folks, before we dive in, You are my dear listeners, and I have a little favor to ask of you. If you're finding value in these conversations and you want to ensure you never miss an episode, please, please, please make sure that you subscribe to the Master Your Business podcast. And hey, while you're at it, take a moment to rate and review us. It means the world to us and it helps others find the show and it ensures that we continue bringing you content that resonates with you for your personal and your professional development journey. Okay, let's dive into it. Denise Leon, one of my idols, I'm so excited to have you join us on the Master Your Business podcast. You are very welcome, Denise. Oh, well, thank you so much, Deirdre. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Oh, not as much as I, I'm (laughs) sure. But Denise, I have read your books. I have referred back to them multiple times. I read on Kindle. It's got so many notes in all of the books because they've provided me with such incredible inspiration and insight into all things branding and customer experience. 
and today that's exactly what we're going to talk about but before we dive into that would you do me the honors and maybe give a little bit of a background about you and how you got into that field and tell us more about you Right, right. Well, Deirdre, you're so kind. And thank you so much for having me on your show. I guess, you know, maybe I'll kind of start from where I am and then kind of work backwards in the sense that right now I am a keynote speaker on brand leadership, which means that I do talk about brand building and customer experience. I also talk about general leadership topics in terms of leading by purpose and values and culture. And then definitely something that we'll talk about today, which is the intersection of employee experience and customer experience. So I get to travel around the world and speak to companies and conferences about these topics and hopefully inspire and teach folks based on my research, you know, the books that I've written, and then the work that I did prior to becoming a speaker, where I you know, was a consultant. And then even before that, I had worked in the corporate world. My last corporate job was with Sony Electronics. I was heading up brand and strategy in their corporate marketing group. And that was really where I first developed and learned and developed a lot of, of my current perspectives on brand building that, you know, the, at the time when I was hired at the company, um, this is way back um, 1998, a long time ago, <laughs> and was wanting to, it, it could already see that there were some cracks in the brand equity, wanted to reinvigorate the brand, uh, but rather than thinking about launching a big brand campaign or doing some kind of splashy advertising or marketing strategy, the president and the chief marketing officer at the time realized that it was most important to first get everyone within the organization aligned and inspired and equipped to build the brand. And so that's really what I worked on for a large part of the time I was at Sony. So yeah, and then before that, I held jobs in, in product marketing and advertising and market research. Oh my gosh, like what an incredible, now I'm not going to say CV, but background. <laughs> <laughs> How inspiring. And Sony, oh my gosh, um, interesting. Their startup journey was incredibly interesting, wasn't it, Denise, in terms of what was the product I think they originally made? Was it a rice? Was it a rice maker? Yes, yeah, yes. So Akio Morita in post-World War II Japan really had a, a burden for the engineers and his company wanted to inspire them, wanted to give them a new vision for the potential impact that the work could have. And so, yeah, like at their first product, yeah, I think was a rice cooker or something like that. They ended up coming out with uh, ultimately the, the Walkman in the 70s, which was kind of like their first kind of, I think, really big breakout consumer product. But, you know, what was special about the way Marita-san ran the company was very much about inspiring his engineers and the people within his company, as well as inspiring people in his customers and the broader society. And, and as I said, that's kind of in digging into the history of Sony, that's how we ended up focusing so much on the internal brand and engagement and alignment, because that had been really the core of the company from the very beginning. And Coming back to that internal alignment, that's really to do with the fusion. And that's why the name of your book is Fusion. It's that fusion of the brand and culture, which comes back to the internal aspect. Is that still as relevant in businesses today as it was for Sony back then? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think it's more relevant because I think that there are many more challenges to 
to that internal alignment. First, there is the, just the employee engagement, what's going on in the labor force. You know, obviously we've all been through this really challenging time of the pandemic and that then I think you know, resulted in employees, I think, feeling very disengaged, questioning a lot about what they were doing, how, why they were doing it, and and caused employers to, to rethink how they were engaging and motivating and equipping their employees. And so, you know, now we're kind of in this weird period of, you know, um, the after effects of that combined with then the remote work and um, hybrid working and the challenges that come with building a culture and engaging people when you've never even met them in person, you know, th there are those factors. And I would say, you know, when we talk about internal alignment, as companies become players within an ecosystem of providers. So, you know, there are partnerships and collaborators, whether that's uh, vendors and suppliers or whether that's distri distributors and service providers around whatever product or service that you're, you're giving to your customers. You know, when you think about internal alignment, it really involves all of those different stakeholders. It really involves everyone who's involved in creating a customer experience for your customers. And so you have to think beyond your four walls. You know, so it was hard enough to engage the people who work for you. Now you have to think about these other folks who have their own priorities, um, their own values, and um, how do you get them into alignment? How do you keep them engaged? So I would say that it is even more relevant and more challenging than ever before. Yeah, I I completely understand how that might be the case. And Denise, let's say, okay, I've read the book Fusion, as I say, multiple times. <laughs> and so I might, I might have a little bit of, what's the word? My brain is not working now. It's where I know everything and I can't remember what it was like when I didn't know it. <laughs> I can't even think what, what that is called right now. I would call that, Deirdre, I would call that you're enlightened, which is a positive <laughs> way of saying it. Right, okay. So for people who have never read the book Fusion, You've already mentioned it's to do with that internal alignment and getting that right. But how else would you dis define what fusion is? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you did a great job of introducing the concept that fusion is really the integration and alignment of your external brand identity and your internal organizational culture. So your external brand identity, meaning, you know, what you want to stand for, for your customers, um, how you're perceived, the kind of experience, the values that drive the kind of experience that you want to create for your customers. And then your internal culture is, you know, just all about how you, you know, what are the values that drive your operations and your strategy, and your decision-making, and whether you are a large company or whether you are, you know, a, a solopreneur like I am, your internal values need to be aligned with how you show up externally, right? Otherwise, what's the point of having these values? And, and so, you know, while uh, most of my work has been with larger companies where there is a lot of, a lot of distance and a lot of noise in between what goes on within a company and what customers see on the outside, even for, you know, people who run small businesses, or like I said, people who are entrepreneurs themselves, you always want to be thinking about what is what it what are the values what is the purpose of my company you know why am i doing what i'm doing and then have that drive what you actually do for your customers rather than starting i think from the outside in and saying well you know we want to 
this is the this is the image that we want to portray and um maybe not necessarily really being that it uh, you know on the inside i think that a lot of people tend to think more about what they want to stand for on the outside well that's great but you need to then do the hard work of making sure that you actually are on the inside what you say you're on the outside that makes sense and I can really see, Denise, for a larger company or with somebody for a lot of employees, the benefit of doing that. And I mean, this is this is kind of where I start when I'm working with clients as well, whether they're solopreneurs or they're in a large company, it's with that brand aspect and their purpose and their vision and mission, the values. What is your view for solopreneurs in terms of that fusion part? Because, mm-hmm. you know, how... Do they need to define what their culture is going to be if they're working by themselves? Is what that, really. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, culture, I think it is a weird concept if you're only thinking about yourself. But I do think that like integrity and authenticity is really important because you are your product. I mean, you know, I, I'm a speaker. I was a consultant. You know, I understand that, you know, people are buying you. And so, and, and they're, and they will cl- quickly find out if the image that you portray is not really the value that you deliver or the you know the identity that you claim is not really what you do for them and so you know i think that as an individual it's really important to think about you know what are my values and be very explicit about them write them down and in infusion i i i talk about you know how to develop or how to discern your values and how to make them unique and differentiated from others. And so I don't mean to make this sound like a book plug, but I also don't want to spend a lot of time talking about that here. So I would just say, you know, make sure that you're developing your values and you're writing them down, and then you are operationalizing them in terms of translating them into specific actions and behaviors, the way that you show up to a meeting, the types of um, services that you provide or that you don't provide. Um, the even small things like the terms of of payment or um, the paperwork that you that you know you sometimes have to deal with all of that needs to be an expression of your purpose and your values. And the last thing I would say, just on on this specific topic, is that you know as an entrepreneur, sometimes we can get really caught up in everything that we can do. You know, there's so many opportunities and so many ideas, and that's great. I mean, that's part of why you know people like us can be very successful is because we're very creative and and you know driven and want to pursue all these things. But I think it's just as important to make sure that you put like kind of clear boundaries on what you will do and what you won't do not only from like an ethics and integrity standpoint, but also from just kind of a scope of work. What is the kind of work that you're, that you are best suited to do? Um, In my first book, What Great Brands Do, I talk about, you know, what are you made to do? How are you designed so that um, the things that you do are uniquely and um, just a, a, just of a quality that it only you could provide and do those things and be willing to let all these other great ideas and great opportunities that come your way that aren't a fit, let, be willing to let those go. Because at the end of the day, if you don't do that, you'll end up trying to do everything, trying to be everything to everyone and end up being nothing to no one, really. I love that and completely agree. And you've definitely got to check out that other book as well. Denise <laughs> just mentioned what great brands do. It's fantastic. And Denise, let's say, coming back to Fusion, 
what is the first step then? So if somebody is looking to really, you know, start that process, mm-hmm. what are the initial steps that they should take to effectively integrate both their brand, their marketing, their culture, and combine everything? What are the first steps? Yeah, well, there are some foundational steps. And I would say maybe, you know, two of them, uh, two out of the three of them are more important for, for entrepreneurs and smaller business people. But the, the three foundational steps are one is to set your purpose and your values, like we talked about. Second is to assess where you are relative to those purpose and values and, you know, are like just kind of, I think, have a very honest self-assessment of whether you are living out that purpose and values. And then the third is really to accept or embrace your leadership responsibility for setting your culture. And so, like I said, maybe that one may be less relevant if you are only working for yourself. Um, But even if you have a small team, I would say you can't take your culture for granted. You can't assume that when you say something like, you know, we we do our work with excellence. I know that's kind of a very generic value, but you know, that everyone knows what that means or everyone has the same standard that you have. So you need to be very explicit and you need to make sure that everyone knows what you're saying, what you're talking about and buys into it and embraces it because, and especially I would also say that if you are running like a family business, sometimes you can think, oh, well, you know, we're so close. We know each other. We live with each other. We've, you know, we've, we've lived our whole lives together. Do I really have to be explicit? I would say yes. (laughs) You know, there, there's no harm in being explicit. And the, the benefit is that you get crystal clear very focused, everyone is aligned and engaged. So once you take those three foundational steps, setting your purpose and values, assessing where you are, and then embracing your leadership responsibility, then there are five strategies to achieving brand culture fusion. And the first one I've already kind of started talking about, that is to organize and operate on brand. Meaning that if your brand really is 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 your purpose and values and you know what you do and and how you do it and what you want to be known for in the world then you need to be identifying the specific strategies the specific processes um the way that you operate that are going to bring those purpose and values to life and um so when i say organize on brand if you are in a larger organization you need to be thinking about organizational hierarchy different departments who reports to who you know, making sure that you are cultivating the kinds of relationships and the kind of work um, work processes that enable you to deliver, deliver on your brand. But in terms of operating, it's really understanding that there are like tons of touch points between your brand and the outside world. And how do you ensure that each one of those touch points expresses your brand, expresses those purpose and values, and, and then kind of re, uh, reverse engineer from those touch points, how, what changes do you make, do you need to make within your organization to align? So uh, organizing and operating on brand is the, the very first step to achieving brand culture fusion. Amazing. And in terms of real world examples, Denise, can you can you share some real world examples of what that might look like in terms of those touch points that you mentioned? Yeah, well, you know, so maybe one from my personal experience, and this kind of goes back to what I was talking about, being clear about what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. So as I said, I'm a keynote speaker and I have 
you know, a certain set of topics that I have developed an expertise on speaking. Now I customize my talk for every, every client that I speak to, but you know, there are certain topics that I really know well and can provide value to my audiences through. And then there are some topics that are maybe more adjacent or I might know a little bit about, but I'm not an expert in. And um, so oftentimes, not not often, sometimes uh, like a speaker bureau or a client will come to me and ask me to speak on something like digital marketing which, you know, my background is in marketing, but given how advanced and evolved digital technology has become in the marketing field today, I do not claim to be an expert at that at all. And so for me to have, to accept a speaking engagement and try to kind of pretend that I'm going to be able to equip and inspire these folks about digital marketing just really isn't, isn't, it, it isn't right and it isn't authentic to my purpose and values. And so I will, you know, clearly tell these folks, I'm not your person. I, I know some folks who I can refer to, you refer you to, but um, kind of being, knowing that as soon as someone reaches out to me and says, hey, will you speak on this topic? I very clearly know, like, um, like strategically, yes, I can do this or no, I can't or I won't. And so that's kind of setting me up from the very beginning to operate on my brand. Yes, I love that. And that makes total sense as well, because I think the other thing is when you do something that's a little bit off brand as a solopreneur, it's incredibly stressful, right? <laughs> and it eats into your energy trying to prepare everything that you're trying to do for that thing, because it's not that it's incredibly different but because it's that <clears throat> bit different it's outside your your operating standards maybe or what you do every day so is that one of the common pitfalls that you see people you know or companies fall into or or are there other types of common pitfalls that you experience yeah no definitely definitely that's a common one I think another one is just not paying attention to the details of the experience that you offer so, you know, uh, uh, these are kind of nitpicky examples. And so you might be thinking that I, I'm making a big deal out of nothing, but I think that they will exemplify. So, you know, I have an accountant who does my tax preparations every year and he is you know, very skillful. He really knows his stuff. Um, he's um, yeah, I'm very reliable and trustworthy in st that standpoint, but he is just not responsive at all. Like it will take me two or three nudges for me to get a question answered or, you know, he definitely is on time when it comes to actually submitting or filing my tax return, but every other communication, it's really difficult to get a hold of him. And I know that he wants to be perceived as a reliable and trustworthy and yeah, a professional in his business. And I would consider something like that to be just like kind of a detail of, you know, it, this is detracting from your image, your brand. It is causing, if I didn't know him so well and I haven't been working with him for so many years, it might cause me to kind of be like, well, why am I even working with this person? You know, there are, there are plenty of other accountants who, you know, can, can do this kind of work. And why would I, you know, why would I tolerate someone who's not operating on his brand? 
Now, I'll give you a flip side example and say that I also have a bookkeeper who does my daily invoicing and billing and all of that stuff. And one thing that I really admired about her is that when she started, when I first started working with her, I was one of her first clients. And after a couple of years, she really wanted to establish her business. And she wanted to make it a point that her clients were the focus. Like she was really being a service provider to them. And um, she wanted to make sure that that was clear from the very beginning of every relationship that I'm here to serve you. You um, have great potential. You have great, um, great clients, great businesses. And my my job is to support you. And so she ended up um, branding, like naming her business um, Big Cheese Business Service because she wanted to say, hey, you're the big cheese and I'm just the little the little guy who's going to help you be that big cheese. And everything she does, you know, is about making sure that her clients feel like they are important and they are they she's there to service them and to help them be successful. So, you know, little details, little examples like that, are, I think, make a big difference in the perception that you are trying to create. Um, especially if if you are an entrepreneur where, again, you are the product, people are buying you. They're making split-second decisions about you and all of those d- detailed touch points. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. And you know what's jumping out in my head as you say that is, and, and this has been my experience, actually, on several occasions, Denise, is that where I've worked with female clients, the care that they, and empathy that they demonstrate towards their clients is second to none. And I've actually had male clients hire me and say to me that we're hiring a woman and they've they've explicitly told me we're hiring a woman because we feel we're missing the empathy and the caregiving that we really want to integrate into part as part of our brand. That blew me away when I heard that. Have you encountered anything like that yourself? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I actually uh, this several years ago, but I wrote a piece. Um, uh, this was back when I was contributing regularly to Forbes, and I wrote a piece about the importance of women in customer experience. And I said, not only for the point, the reason that you mentioned, Deirdre, about the empathy and the care and the compassion that I think is, you know, stereotypically, but I think generally more ingrained in in women leaders, but also the collaboration, the um, openness to partnering, to to sharing ideas and coming together to create something uh, bigger and better than you could do on your own. Again, I think stereotypically, but generally speaking, I think women are more inclined to collaborate. And and today, customer experience requires that collaborative collaborative nature. It requires you to understand. This is my piece of what I'm delivering, but I'm relying on these other 10 people to you know, deliver the other pieces to the customer. And how do you cultivate the relationships that make that experience great? I think that, that women maybe have a slight advantage in that area. Yeah. And what's, I think another aspect or element of that might be something along the lines of that purpose and value and those specific types of behaviors that sometimes with with clients who are particularly data-driven, they're so focused on fact and logic that sometimes they forget the empathy, the emotions and the relationships aspect. 
And so that's been my experience because I work with quite a lot of data-driven professionals and they're professional service providers. I have accountants like you who it takes maybe two, even 10 in, uh, <laughs> engagements to give them that nudge and come back to me, but eventually they do. And it's not that they don't have empathy or are not fantastic at demonstrating emotion and relationships. It's just that it doesn't always integrate into the business aspect has been my experience. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. And I, maybe that goes back to the whole idea of, you know, really assessing yourself and being very honest about, well, if I, if I know myself and I want to be caring and compassionate and empathetic, am I really showing up like that in, in my business relationships? And I, maybe that's another thing that I would say is that, you know, sometimes people talk about, well, it's just business. And, you know, they try to kind of keep their business life separate from their personal life and their business identity separate from their personal identity. I don't know if you can really do that. I mean, certainly you don't want people like oversharing or, or, you know, doing things that are inappropriate because, you know, they're personally having issues or, you know, whatever. But I think that the more you can strive to show up as a single person, you know, like a person of integrity, someone who, you know, lives their life in all spheres of their life by the same values, then you don't have to, it's natural for you to then bring that caring and compassion to your clients because that's just how you show up versus thinking, oh, well, it's just business. This is how I need to be in these business transactions, which is very different from how I am personally. That makes sense completely. And Denise, let's say coming back to the values and the behaviors, because in my opinion, those two are so closely related and have such a big impact on culture. You know, when it comes, when and again, my experience has been working with solopreneurs whose businesses have grown and where they've hired people to come on their teams, you know, as they start to get clarity themselves and, and are able to articulate what that brand and culture is about, what other sorts of common pitfalls do you see coming up or what resistance, like what, what's happening to people who are in that sort of growth phase related to their brand and culture? Yeah, yeah. I think you already started to hint at it, Deirdre, and that is when you are hiring people to ensure that they share your values. And again, I think you need to be very explicit about what your values are and make sure that, you know, the people who you are recruiting know what you're talking about and embrace what you're talking about. And then if you end up hiring someone who is maybe a really great performer in terms of their business results, but is not aligned with your values and is actually very difficult to work with or wreaking havoc on the culture or alienating the other few employees that you have, you know, you, you need to make the tough decision to let that person go, even though that they, they are a high performer. I think one of the most damaging things you can do to any business, but particularly as a small business, because you have so few people, is to tolerate bad behavior by one of your one of your team members. Again, even if they are a high performer, I know it's really difficult because you know you are your success is so dependent on the people you have. And, and you know, I think that your employees take their cues from you. Like if you say that our our these are our values, but then you don't hold everyone to that same standard, 
they're not going to hold themselves to that same standard because they're looking at you and realizing, okay, well, that's not what, what they're saying is not what they're doing. Same thing kind of just, and that makes, it brings up a good point about role modeling and, you know, the need to ensure that on a daily basis in both the big things you do and the small details that you are expressing those values, you're representing your values, you know, from the way that you greet people to, you know, the way that you dress, the way you run meetings, you know, the way that you, when, where, and how you send your messages to your employees, all of those communicate all of these, um, what you really are, like all these, your real values. Yeah, I love that. And actually, I completely agree with you around the bad behavior part, isn't it? Uh, what's it, What's the saying? What's accepted is encouraged. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a great, that's a great saying. And the other saying that I would um, draw to, and and I think this is, I, I believe this is infusion. I might be in great, what great bands do, but Patrick Lencioni, who is a organizational man and management thought leader and consultant, he talks about how your values have to inflict pain in the sense that, you know, you're, you're, they're going to cause you to make difficult decisions. You're going to have to go against the flow, challenge industry convention, you know, do what is hard in order to stick to your values. Because if they, if everyone, if your values are just so generic and vanilla that everyone's like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, we believe in customer service and, you know, quality work. Well, they're not, they're not meaningful. They're not really getting, getting the traction. But if you, you, you put stake, a stake in the ground and say, you know, um, Good is the enemy of great, uh, which I believe maybe I don't know if it's Google or, or one of the big tech companies has a value like that. Um, if that's going to cause you, like, if you are about to present something to a client and it is only good and it's not great, you're going to have to reschedule that meeting or you're going to have to pull an all nighter or you're going to have to, you know, maybe fire an employee who allowed that good presentation to move forward. And those values inflict pain, but that that is how you build a great company and how I think you become, um, you know, a person of integrity is by living by your values. I couldn't agree more. And a question I have about that is, Denise, let's say if a company is changing strategy or direction and, you know, or, and maybe they're having a look internally again at what their values are because they realize they're not actually aligned or they can just feel that there's a mismatch somewhere related to brand and culture. And, you know, change, particularly in larger organizations, which I worked in for 20 years, I understand how difficult and challenging that can be. So, you know, what what would you say to a leader who, again, is in a growing business, maybe has 20, 30, 50 employees or more? How can they overcome resistance related to that change where it's for the good of the customer it's for the good you know it's it's going to benefit employees ultimately long term and it's going to benefit the business what suggestions would you have there a couple of thoughts come to mind one is to ensure that people really do understand the impact that will have on your customers and to share the customer stories and to maybe even, you know, bring your customers in to talk with your employees or maybe conduct an interview with a key customer and, and 
play that interview for your employees, just so that people understand that this isn't just you making things up, you know, or you deciding, oh, we're going to do this instead of this, but rather that you are, you are focused on creating the best possible customer experience and creating the greatest value for your customer. And if you can kind of close that gap between employee and customer and ensure that you're telling those stories and that you are making that customer come to life and, and kind of to the point you were talking about before, help your employees cultivate empathy for your customers, then I think it's easier or um, it, it's, uh, it's more likely that they will buy into whatever change in direction that you are proposing because they understand that this is for the good of the customer. Um, this is going to help their lives be better. This is going to help our, our customers treat their customers better. You know, so they, they tend to kind of um, feel more ownership and yeah, embrace of, of a new direction. I do think also though that you kind of what I was referring before about the connection between customer experience and employee experience. You need to help employees have the same kind of experience that you want customers to have. And so if you are moving in a new direction, you know, make sure that you're bringing your employees along. I mean, my favorite just kind of example is, you know, a company that wants to um, make a customer experience really seamless and intuitive and tech enabled and everything is digital, but then, you know, and so they're trying to move the the, co the company and the customer experience that direction, but they're still dealing with their employees in terms of everything's bureaucratic and on paper and it's slow and, and um you know, requires just, yeah, all this like paperwork, your employees are not going to understand much less embrace the new direction that you want to go to. So you need to design your employee experience to really capture the key elements of your desired customer experience. And I think when you do that, then employees just naturally understand why you're making a change or, or actually they may be kind of pushing to make that change themselves because they understand, oh, this is so much better than the way we used to do it. We want to create that same kind of experience for customers. Yes. And oh my gosh, doesn't that start initially from that whole onboarding journey with a new employee? That's the culture. You're kind of setting it out there. And then from day one, even the interview process and you know how quickly people respond. I've seen it firsthand, Denise. I couldn't agree with you more. And yeah, you know, something you, you mentioned there in terms of that connection between employee experience and customer experience and that overall fusion, how can brand or a CEO, how can brands measure that? Like mm. what sort of KPIs or metrics should they be looking at? Right, right. Well, you know, there are the standard ones, like, you know, if you're going to measure customer experience, you're, you're probably familiar with net promoter score. And, you know, there, there are, there are critics and, you know, kind of concerns with net promoter score, but I think it's like a very, it's a very simple easy to understand and fairly easy to implement metric. And so I, I like it for that reason. And then, you know, people, uh, companies have been embracing an ENPS, employee net promoter score. So making sure that you are measuring how likely are your employees to recommend you as an employer and tracking both of those. Like, I also think that, you know, you need to be having regular um, touch points with your employees, whether that's pulse surveys, whether that's town halls, things where you can kind of see how are you doing and are we making progress? You know, are we moving in the right direction? And some of that, some of that measurement may be more qualitative. It may be the types of comments or the number of comments or the, the, the 
ratio of positive to negative feedbacks you get from your employees. And then, you know, I think that there are all sorts of brand measurements that you can that you can implement, whether it's looking at your brand equity or your brand, um, the perception of your brand on certain attributes, the ones, the values and attributes that you espouse or you I, I want to embrace. You know, making sure that you're doing like market research or customer research to track how you're being perceived in those elements. Um, all of those are ways to, um, I think, and I think maybe the most important thing I would say is what I was going to say is all of those are ways to know how you're doing, but then also to be able to diagnose what are the problems or what's holding you back. And I think that's really the most important part about measurement is you don't just want to go for an NPS of, you know, 80 or 90 or whatever. You want to understand what is causing people to detract. Where are the hiccups in our customer experience? Are there misalignments in our culture that are causing our employees to be disengaged? And then really being able to diagnose the problem and then implement solutions. Oh my gosh, I couldn't agree with you more. And that those qualitative conversations, be they internally or externally, are like gold. And I think often are underestimated, particularly when it comes to customer experience. And again, because I worked in large corporates for 20 years, my experience has been that on the front line, that those employees can give a very valuable insight into how the customer experience is going and when that customer experience is negative that that positive that sorry that there's a correlation a negative correlation with the employee experience and where the, those qualitative conversations have been held and no action has been taken or no plan implemented that that further negatively impacts the employee experience would you agree yeah, Deirdre, you just said two really important things. So the last point you just made is that, you know, if you're going to collect feedback and you're going to listen, that's great. But then you actually have to act on what you learned. Um, and even if it is, you know, I going back to your employees and saying, I heard you say this and we're deciding to do this instead, but at least kind of explaining that you've heard them and that why you're making the decision you're making. I think that that um, is so important. Um, because yeah, uh, you will soon lose whatever engagement you have with employees if you're asking for their input, but you never act on it. Um, and that's really then the second thing that you said, I think was really important is that your employees are probably some of the best people to tell you what's going on with your customers, your frontline employees, the ones who are interacting with your, with your customers on a daily basis. They are going to have so much insight on, on who your customers are what their needs are and how well you're serving them. And so, you know, use your employees as a, a research tool and I think empower them, you know, make sure that they know the kinds of things, kinds of input and feedback you're looking for so that they can provide that to you. Um, you will learn so much if you stop and listen to your employees and then take action Completely. And something that you mentioned before, Denise, was about diagnosing the problems and understanding, you know, where are those issues? And yes, you can do the NPS and the, and the, the qualitative conversations and so on. But a question I have related to that is more to do with the internal alignment. How can you diagnose if the problem is actually what the purpose and the values are, or have you experienced that with any clients you've worked with or, or anything like that, where the problem is, you know, what's set out at the top, they're just not right and they have to be realigned? Hmm. 
You know, I'm thinking about it and I'm not sure if I've come into that situation. I've definitely worked with clients. When I talk about purpose and values, the first thing they'll say um, is kind of very, very surface level purpose. Like either, you know, we're here to, um, you know, make a lot of money or, you know, to make our shareholders are um, uh, profitable, or, you know, they might talk about, you know, we want to crush the competition and, you know, these kind of purpose purposes that are very valid. I mean, you know, we're, we're in business, so making money should be part of our model, but, you know, usually requires kind of unpeeling the onion and saying, well, why is that important? Well, you know, in many cases you need to be profitable in order just to, to be, um, yeah, you need to be profitable in order to be sustainable. Why is being sustainable important? Well, because you want to you know, make an impact on your customers or you want to leave a legacy of some sort or whatever. And, you know, so I've had to work with my clients to kind of really unpeel that onion and dig deep and really get to their why. And that's one of the things that I talk about in my book is a process that I learned from um, Jim Collins and Jerry Porras and their work on Built to Last and Built to Great about, you know, just asking the five whys, you know, why is that important? Why is why is that your purpose? You know, what do you think is going to happen as a result of that? Why is that important? Why is that important? Ask five times. And finally, you get to a meaningful and motivating purpose that then not only animates you as the founder or the leader, but also will um, really engage your employees. So that's probably the only example or only instances I've had where you know, maybe a leader or owner is hasn't really thought very deeply about what their purpose is. And so just needing to do needing to do the hard work, I think, is important in really discovering what is that ultimate purpose that you're you're chasing after. So aside from hard work, Denise, what qualities have you seen in those exceptional leaders <laughs> who really effectively managed to lead that fusion process? I think one is like a willingness to change themselves. You know, I think a lot of times they they think, oh, well, everyone else needs to change. I'm fine, you know? And so I think just being, having a lot of self-awareness to understand where are you creating disconnects or roadblocks or misalignments and being willing to make changes. And, and that's hard, you know, because oftentimes that involves admitting that you've done something wrong. No one, no leader wants to go to their employees and say, I'm sorry, you know, I did this wrong and now I'm going to do better. But I think, you know, the best leaders do do that. You know, they, they understand that the only way that we're going to get better is if I get better first. And then I think, yeah, that is maybe building on that is to to promote a uh, learning and developing culture in the sense of being okay with mistakes, being okay with failure, and really trying to learn from what was done wrong in order to get better, as opposed to only punishing or, yeah, kind of downplaying the the things and, and mistakes that were made or whatever, but really trying to kind of be okay and say, yes, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to take some detours. Some of our products and services are not going to work, but what are we learning in this process and how will that learning help us get better? So I think kind of having that kind of learning mindset and the growth and development mindset is, is really important. And then perhaps the last thing we kind of touched on this a little bit when we were talking about the collaboration is understanding that it's not about you, that it's really about us and whether that's your internal team or whether that's your external partners, 
um, but even your customers, you know, understanding that um, your success depends on everybody's success. I love that. Absolutely love that. So I'm just, I've taken notes. I've got like two A4 pages of notes. Um, So to recap, in terms of leadership qualities, to have an incredible brand culture internally in your company, we're talking about self-awareness of the leader, where you're recognizing roadblocks, disconnects and misalignments. We're talking about an L&D culture where it's okay to make mistakes and you learn from failures. They help propel you forward. And the final one is it's not about you. It's collaborative. It's about us, the collective we being the team, the business, and the customer. Have we got that right? Oh my gosh, Deirdre. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. I should go to you whenever I need editing. (laughs) That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Fantastic. And Denise, but I, I love that. And I think, you know, since the pandemic, a lot of people have changed in so many different ways. And I think companies have changed drastically as well. And I know you don't have a crystal ball where you can tell what's going to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. But if you did and you could, you know, work your magic, what do you see happening in terms of brand and fusion? How do you see that evolving in the next five, 10 years? Mm-hmm. I can only say that I think it's going to become even more important. And I think that as employees, you know, whether they return to the office or not, but, you know, as you try to re-engage your employees, they are going to have higher expectations for the contributions that they make. Um, They are going to, uh, I think, act with a level of agency and advocacy when they see things that aren't right or even just see they see new opportunities that they think that you're new and your company should go after. I think there's going to be more um, employee driven, more yeah, employee initiated movements within companies. And leaders not not just need to be okay with that. I think they need to be prepared and to know how do you unleash that potential and all that inspiration, all these great ideas of your employees in the right direction, you know? So the leader doesn't advocate, advocate abdicate their responsibility for ensuring that, you know, you are moving towards your purpose and values, but making, but making room and, and including more people and really investing in your employees' development as much as your company's development. I've interviewed somebody who's on the show and I'm not sure if it's released before this episode goes out. You'll just have to go back and check. <laughs> if you're listening today but the episode is about AI and Mm. the integration of AI in terms of culture in a business and we Mm. talked about creating a twin brain of employees and this is where AI has been people have been working in the AI industry or field for 20 years plus and these are the types of things that they're doing And they're doing it in such a way where it benefits both the company and the business. But, you know, my my question about this or challenge was around the soft skills and things and and those touch points that just don't feel the same when they're automated. So in terms of AI and technology, how do you think that's going to influence or impact employees and customers? What's your view? Yeah. You know, I don't, I wouldn't claim to be an expert in this field at all. This is one of those topics that someone asked me to speak on, I would say no, but I will say that I, I, I mean, 
there, I think that there is a lot of trepidation about the impact of AI on certain jobs and whether they're going to make these jobs go away or make these jobs a lot less valuable. And I think that those those concerns are very real. And as we as a as a society need to figure out how do we how do we protect our our employees and the humanity of our employees while at the same time embracing these new technologies that enable us to uh, streamline things or enable us to become more efficient or um, more improve the quality of what we're delivering over, you know, maybe what even a human can do. And, but at the same time, I think also figuring out what are the unique things that only humans can do and how can AI and other technologies enable us to do those better. So, you know, yes, AI may be able to help you predict a customer's journey or a customer's need, but actually interacting with a customer and making sure that they feel seen and heard and valued, that's gonna be very difficult to do through technology. So maybe it's a matter of like redirecting and, um, and, and equipping and upskilling your employees to engage with customers in different ways to do things that only they can do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, some of the words and language you've used there are, even, you know, like seen, make customers feel seen and heard and valued. Like AI is never going to be able to really do that. Not in a way that's not pretentious or artificial because, you know, artificial being in the name, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. let's say, Denise, as we wrap up, you know, this podcast is really geared towards those small and medium-sized business owners who are aspiring for six, seven, eight figures or more. Mm -hmm. What can they do or, you know, how can they achieve that successful fusion of brand and culture? Do you have any tips tailored for those small, smaller businesses? Mm -hmm. I think I've touched on it a few times and I would just kind of want to be explicit about, I've used the word unique several times. And I think mm -hmm. it's really important for you to, um, to identify what it is that you do that is uniquely you, that no one else can do or another one else can do as well as you. And, and make that, make your brand about that and make your customer experience about that. I think one of the things I talk about when I, when I speak a lot is that, you know, good is unsustainable, but unique is unstoppable in the sense that, you know, if you, if you are, are an accountant or, you know, some other service provider, an attorney, et cetera, you know, you don't just want to be a good service provider. You don't even want to be like better than someone else because there will always be someone else who comes along and does it even better than you. Mm -hmm. But if you can be unique, if you can identify what it is it about you that only you can do and really make that crystal clear to your clients and your prospects, I think that'll, and then ensure that you do that, obviously. But um, really working on that that key differentiation, that unique positioning will help you stand out, will help people understand you, and will help people value you more. You know, when people are looking at your fees and they're trying to figure out why would I pay you this versus someone else that, if, if they can say what this person, this is the only person who does this, 
or this is the only person who does this in this unique way, then that's worth paying for. And I know you covered that in quite a bit of detail. I think that's in what great brands do, right? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As well as I think fusion, because, you know, it, uh, and that's the, that just to wrap up, because I know that we're, we're running out of time, but this idea of like having a unique culture then helps you have a unique brand. So it's just all about really understanding how can you be different? Mm. And I suppose a question I have on that is because, again, that's something that I try to help clients with is to understand what makes them different. They really struggle with that. Have you got Mm. any tips to help a brand really look internally and determine Mm. what makes, you know, what what is their, I won't say USP or unique selling point Mm -hmm. because I don't think that's enough. Yes. It needs to be different as you say not better but different how yeah, what, yeah how can they do that I mean I will just speak from personal experience and knowing your competition is really important and it's easy I think sometimes again like entrepreneurs you know we are I think very aggressive and you know we kind of may fall into a trap of thinking well we're we're just we're the best you know no one else can do it the way we can do it and and we kind of assume this superiority But I think understanding, like having a real respect and appreciation for your competition, understanding what they do and what they do uniquely. And really, I think digging into that for me has been really helpful, you know, so so to understand if someone's going to hire me as a speaker, who are the other, you know, three or four folks that they are considering and why would they hire me over someone else? And why would they pay my fee over someone else's fee? Well, it's because... I have this experience. It's because I have this unique perspective. It's because I give very content-rich presentations. I'm not there to to make you laugh. I'm there to make you think. You know, things like that. Like really knowing what other people do well, and then choosing to do what only you can do well. Again, I think it's really about doing the hard work of digging into that. Mm, yes, Com- couldn't have said it better, Denise. <laughs> Fantastic. So Denise, as we wrap up, tell us what's coming up for you in 2024 and beyond and where can people find you? Yeah, well, thank you. And thanks again for having me on your show. You know, my um, website, Denise Leon, is kind of a portal, not only to all of my social channels. Right now, I'm mostly on LinkedIn, but it's also a portal to all of my writing. I do for whether it's Harvard Business Review or other publications, Smart Brief on Leadership. I usually produce videos for them. So you can get all of that on my website. And I think in terms of the future, you know, I feel like 2023 is this year of kind of resetting post-pandemic and, you know, the speaking engagements are coming back and people are trying to figure out how, how many events do we do in person versus virtual versus hybrid, et cetera. I think, so I don't know what 2024 will hold, but I think there will be a, a kind of a next level where people will be expecting much more from speakers, much more from events. And I'm looking forward to being a part of that. And no doubt you will and be very successful at the same time. Well, Denise, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. It's amazing, incredible to meet my idol, whose books, as they say, (laughs) have been, whilst on Kindle, if they were in paper, they would be in ribbons by now, because (laughs) I have referred back to them so many times, and they've been a great source of inspiration as have you today. So thank you again, Denise. It's been an incredible pleasure and honor to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much, Deirdre. Wow, wow, wow. That was seriously good stuff. Denise, you knocked it out of the park for us today, talking about 
internal alignment and its game changing role for professional service providers, folks just like us, pure gold. Thank you, Denise. I don't know about you, but I think that Denise just has this amazing way of taking those really big ideas and breaking them down. So they just they just sort of make sense, right? From shaping mega brands to writing killer books, you are giving us the goods on how to mesh brand and culture. So it clicks from for everyone, from the team, the employees, business, and of course, to the all-important customer. And it's so cool, I think, to remember and to focus on the fact that behind every great business, there is its vibe, its culture, its people. And for all the pros tuning in, it's this is not just a, a nod along here. If you find yourself nodding, this is an opportunity for you to dive in, to tweak things and lead with those qualities that Denise talked about. And, and show real heart in terms of your business. Folks, as a bonus, I'm going to add the link to my brand strategy checklist in the show notes because you can download it for free. But in the checklist, it covers some of the things that Denise mentioned, like purpose, mission, mission, values, and so on. So get your hands on that in the show notes. And I highly recommend that if your business is growing or expanding, that you do check out Denise's books. She's got four now. I've read two. They are incredible. And I genuinely mean it when I say if they were hard copies, they will be falling apart at the seams. I kid you not. I have referred back to them. I don't know how many times. So in her books, she in the two that I've read, she offers free resources that come along with them as well. And they are definitely worth uh, checking out, even just for the free resources. They're incredibly useful. So big thank you again to you, Denise, my idol, as I've said before, for hanging out with us today. And to you, our incredible listeners, you are the reason we do this. And it is a blast every single time. So folks, catch us next week at the same time today, whatever time you like to listen. Catch us next time for more chats, stories, and the download on what makes a business tick. And hey, if you want some more behind the scenes fun, some chats with experts, and just a cool place to hang with some fellow professional service providers, check out the Master Your Business podcast community. You'll find the link in the show notes as well. So until next time, I'm Deirdre Martin. Keep mastering your business.